and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the ancient world, the classical world, put on by three classical educators who work at a classical Christian school in sunny, sunny Austin, Texas. My name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined here with my two colleagues, AJ Handenberg. Oh, that's me. <laughs> and Thomas Fletcher Mangan. I know you were looking Hello. for an answer there. And yeah, gentlemen, as I sit here, I realize that amongst you fine specimens, I am the oldest and therefore the best. Yes, that is 100% true. Because things that are older are better. Nay, sir, younger things are better. Ergo, I am the best member. So I believe, Thomas, that you have a topic today of a... <laughs> I prefer only present things. <laughs> Like so, stuff, that is, stuff that is there for a moment and then passeth away. So maybe like, you know, those uh, those chemicals in the periodic table that you can only have for a split second, mm-hmm. like uh-huh. burpitanium <laughs> and uh-huh. and that it only exists for a split second. Those things are my favorite those little magic moments, little little pleasures that pass away instantly, like a small chocolate or so I think we can throw out AJ's or a, view. A, a passing bird. And but the bird must be. Instantly born and then instantly die. So it's not an old bird or a young bird. It is Man. essence of birds momentary. So AJ is a romantic. We can put it yes. in okay, <laughs> And objectively wrong. Wasn't that our takeaway from previous? Yeah, good. So, Thomas. Well, the, the truth is the present doesn't exist. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, time's a flat circle. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> can we get true detective references on every episode for the rest of time now? On it. Okay, good. All right. So, Thomas, what are we learning about today? Guys, we're going to... I, we teased this at the end of last episode, but our goal for today is to question the entire... Concept Conceit. of our yeah of our podcast and our employer and the movement sweep in the nation of classical education. So only only a few minor topics to That's consider right. for the day. Well, resistance is the burden of the intelligent and subdued. Is that is this a quote? No, that's me. It sounded like wow. I just made it. Up. Put that on a t shirt. Speaking of which, classical stuff you should know. There it is. T shirt. So but I mean, what I mean, like, what if we're subdued by like a heavy fluffy pillow mm. like i don't know if i don't know if i want to resist that because <laughs> it's just so good okay so we will be talking about a few things but among them are some logical fallacies we've discussed before appeal to tradition appeal to novelty and then cultural snobbery or um uh, chronological snobbery sorry we are 100 cultural snobs but our, the question is whether we should be chronological snobs so let's start with our definitions. So Being called a snob is the burden of people of taste isn't that what i'm that, so thankful line? you finally put that you finally recorded that. Um, so snobbery, um, snobbery is the burden of every man with taste. There it is. Do I need to say it now too? <laughs> but, snobbery uh, is the burden. But the problem of is, I I looked up snobbery, uh-huh. and snobbery means I don't know denigrating or judging people who enjoy simpler things. Oh, and I don't know that no, that's, that's not us. True. That's not us, right? No. I think I think being selective is the burden of every man with taste. Hmm. But ah. it doesn't sound as good as snobbery. Yeah. So I I say the line, but I don't know that it's. It's apt. actually me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a snob, but I won't drink your nasty beer. That's interesting. So you're, I probably should have looked this one up first. A person snob, a person with an exaggerated respect for high social position. Mm-hmm. So ah, see, there say, you go. Yeah. Or wealth who seeks to associate with social superiors and dislikes people or activities regarded as lower class. So we see, that's, that's what I mean. Like selectiveness is the burden of every man with taste. Yeah. Not, not being willing to, I don't know, drink stuff that is terrible and do things that mm-hmm. are dumb and but but not adhering to those simply because they're highbrow. Mm-hmm. So let's so then let's take this with so chronological snobbery is one of the terms we'll go through but let's start with the first two that kind of well most clearly relate to this. So 
two logical fallacies that I think we, we might have grouped together under chronological snobbery, but we at least reference these. So they are the appeal to tradition and the appeal to novelty. Do y'all want to take either one of those and say what they mean? Appeal to tradition. This thing is good because we have always done it. And appeal to novelty. Look at this new thing. Isn't it good because it's new? Yeah. And then a is another form of appeal to novelty. As the final, as the final say on whether or not we should do the thing. I think there's. Is. I think you can make appeals to tradition and or appeals to novelty as part of an argument. But if you have it be the final say, saying we should do this because we've always done it. So, done. so I think I think where it becomes fallacious is where it becomes the premise for a reason yes. to do something. We should do this because we have always done it. It's not a good argument, right? Appealing to say we have always done it, therefore there is probably wisdom in it. Perhaps that wisdom that I don't see is a better argument. But then how is it a fallacy? Why, why would we call it a fallacy? Yeah. If, if it's okay to appeal to tradition, why do we say that appeal to tradition is a fallacy? Uh, I think... I, th- I honestly think it's, it's con- tradition. Yeah, I think it's context. So if I appeal to tradition in, say, a celebration, say we've always we've always done the cake and the song, like mm-hmm. that's part of what we do. Like that, that that might be appeal to a continuation of a tradition just for the sake of the tradition. But if I say we should go to war because we go to war every January, is maybe a maybe a bad way to do things. I don't know. Uh, as with every fallacy, right? A an informal fallacy is contextual. Is con- okay, so so like a, referencing a fallacious appeal to authority. If I appeal to, say, Mr. Donaldson over here on how to write a sentence, well, he is a he is an authority. But if I appeal to him on how, how to, to go to war in January, how to go to war in January, he's maybe not an authority. So his 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 authority changes depending on context. So it matters the type of tradition or the type of novelty we're referencing, or really what we're arguing for. If yep. I am arguing for like keep doing a tradition because I like traditions. Mm. That's different than saying we should do a thing and tradition is the reason even, even in, ah, so know, then we still have it. to make, so yes, we receive a tradition, but then we make a decision for ourselves, whether we continue that tradition. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. I mean, that's, I don't the, know. Tradition gets complicated because as with all, well, you, you know, chron- chronological snobbery gets complicated. So let's, yeah, let's go in for that one then. So chronological snobbery then is, essentially another form for appeal to novelty. It was coined by C.S. Lewis in a debate where I believe he was still an atheist at the time. He was debating someone. Lewis said something to the effect of religion is outdated because it's old. And then he was called out for being a chronological snob. So to say that only things that are modern matter is is chronological snobbery. Yeah. So we can broaden that somewhat. And again, this, I think we might have on the episode. So when it was originally used in 1955, it meant only new things are good. But to take the age of a thing as an indication of the value of a thing, we might also call chronological snobbery. This was AJ's comment that in classical education, we will sometimes do the opposite of what Lewis meant. We'll say, because a thing is old, therefore it's good. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, it might be... I'm not calling you out. This, like, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. We're going to go through three points on like chronological snobbery. And yeah. No, no, I'm agreeing okay. with you too. Okay, so good. age does not necessarily confer value, but... The funny thing is old, something being old can hint at value depending on that thing. So if it is an old book that we still read, it hints at value because that book has said something valuable to people across the centuries, right? It doesn't guarantee that it's a good book. There are some books we still read that were bad when they came out. They were bad when people read them a hundred years ago and they're bad now. But there are 
but that a book has lasted that long and we continuously read it hints that there is something valuable in, in it that perhaps we don't necessarily see yeah. and can still see. It, Whereas it is less likely that a new thing be valuable just because it is new. Although that can confer value, right? With computers, generally the newer the computer, the better, right? So sometimes the, the age of, of something can hint at its value, but it's not necessarily a one and done premise for its value just because it is old does not mean that it, it's good this age can hint at a thing this is fair you want it to- has some sort of comp- like let's say for a book or something that's lasted for a long time it's had some kind of competitive advantage over its contemporary books sometimes that competitive advantage could be luck so the reason why um this author got popular the reason why we read um uh the great gatsby in every public school or whatever um, versus any other of his, there was other contemporary writers who were writing similar kind of lost generation novels about decadence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason, so is the reason why we read the Great Gatsby because of the merits of Great Gatsby? There's probably part of that. Is it also because of some kind of of maybe just complete dumb luck that it had? It, it was in fashion at the time that curriculum was being was being talked about. Probably, or yeah, even perhaps. sometimes with a book, it's it's not popular because it's good. It's popular because it it rose in popularity because of a scandal. Um, sure, Jane Eyre comes to mind, right? When she came out, when that book came out, no one knew if the author was male or not. It later came out that the author authoress was female, and that caused the big sensation. And so hold, every, hold, 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 yeah, everybody had to read this crazy book that was also written by a woman and accused of being non Christian. Yeah, which is weird. It's not right. It's not. Yes, and so, but. Just a lot of people she, still like, read it, and a lot of people still enjoy it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but like she shouldn't have. She anyway. should not have married the Jane missionary. Jane is a great book. Jane Eyre is an amazing book. Yeah, it's um, good. That- so yeah, if you think about like what what causes species to to can you know to compete against Jane other is, times uh, of species? Charlotte uh, Bronte. Yeah, but that's the missionary. That's the one with the missionary. Is, is there another Saint John the missionary? Yeah, yeah at the end, Saint John. But that that's not Her Jane Austen. No. You're saying there's another Jane Austen book with... There's no, a Jane no, Austen no. Book. I, I oh. was saying Jane Eyre. Sorry. Sorry. Just making sure. Sorry. Um, so, like, if you think of species, like, what causes uh, a group of species or or a culture or any sort of thing to, um, to have some sort of staying power, well, it's got to have some kind of competitive advantage. And when we talk about it with books, the competitive advantage, I guess, we mainly gravitate towards is quality. Quality or... Um, it had some sort of emotional resonance at the time. So, I mean, um, go back and look at the Pulitzer Prize. No, go back and look at the Nobel Prizes for Literature or go back and even look at the best, you know, the, the Oscar award winning, all, all the movies that won, won awards. Not all of them have had staying power. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't mean that just because they were in vogue that year doesn't mean that they sort of have stayed. Um, um, so yeah, so there is because something has existed and and continues to be read for you know five hundred years for example, um, if we want to think of like uh, Dante mm-hmm. even longer, um, there's something there's something qualitative about it than a book that was in vogue in the 1918 in a hundred years ago that we don't read again, that we don't read anymore today. Yeah. Again, age can be a hint at quality, but not necessarily a mm-hmm. seal the deal on quality. So then let me take it. I'll go two different. I'm going to come at the same topic, but from two different ideas. One is when we, when people talk about going off to college and picking a major, 
do we think of someone differently if they go off to study the classics versus they go off to study computer science? Um, yeah, yeah, yes, I, I do. But I mean, that is that, that's I mean, I've tipped my hand because I'm you know a classical. Ah, but the only thing I, I think that is is that I can accurately ascribe the adjective nerd to, <laughs> to, to both to both qualities so so long as they choose one of those two i can still call them a nerd 100 and i'm i'm in the clear you'd be accurate with 100 confidence yeah. yes yeah so i think one is like leaning more towards like practicality and the other one is leaning more towards selfish is the wrong mean wrong word but they've sort of found some sort of enjoyment with something that is not in vogue like studying the classics oh well, you're just recognizing the basic difference between computer nerd and book nerd yeah yeah one Smells like paper and mold. The other one smells like Mountain Dew and yeah. keyboard oil. And future success. Future success. <laughs> yeah. And, future and just of cash. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so but, uh, so we, will, we, we will have a different reaction than the population at large. So we would say there's some value in studying the classics. Maybe university setting is the wrong place for it. So none of us have degrees in classics, right? Yours relates to theology. I guess you read classics as a part of that. Yeah, I did theology i did an english literature degree but i um only took classes in books that were over 100 years old good for you <laughs> and um, theology and theology. Uh, yeah, yeah. and philosophy i did a lot of philosophy yeah so some piece of like you know i'm sure you're reading classic works of philosophy but most people would say you probably shouldn't go to college to study the classics just read those in your free time i i told the story i think i forget who i was talking with someone that's where you go Sure. So last, uh, I was uh, when I was in undergrad, I was a dual major for marketing and psychology, and I was taking a class in the business school. I told my professor this just because we were talking, and he told me, you are wasting your time studying psychology here. You should just pick up some books and read those books, and that's equivalent to you taking any number of classes here. It's a waste of time to study something. At unnamed university. Of Texas, yeah. Oh. So unnamed <laughs> university, exactly. An unnamed university of Texas that I went to, anyway. You so, mean... Hook you whom, Thomas? Team? Hook whom? Uh, unnamed? Whom, whom ought to be hooked? Are you saying it's unnamed Texas? It's unnamed or University U- of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> the UUT is where I went. Exactly. I, yeah, oh, so we're getting sued for libel. Whom are we hooking? I, I'm not. It's not libel. I mean, it's an accurate story that to happened. Whom? Anyway. To Hook to whom? Who, who ought to be hooked? So, yes, that is. <laughs> what is happening? We. It's Saturday, I'm very happy everybody. Yeah. It's a Saturday podcast. And we're at Veritas anyway. And I got very little sleep. Yeah. So that that was my interaction. Again, psychology is not classics, but the the idea was if you're not getting some kind of practical skill, you're wasting your time. So there's some value to things that are new and technical, mm-hmm. and there is a waste of time to things that are old. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is what was originally meant by chronological snobbery. So there's a type of that right there. Let's take another piece of that. I don't remember who I was talking with. And so if, if you're a listener, I apologize. I also don't remember the details of the story. Someone was uh, some someone was telling me that their student was the parent was talking with a student about their like Advent Christmas traditions. And one of the traditions was they do an Advent wreath and they do an Advent wreath every Sunday leading up to eventually Christmas. That student told the parent, this is appeal to tradition. We only do this thing because it's been done before. Therefore, we shouldn't do it. It is a we we ought to decide for ourselves what we do. We should not just follow whatever tradition has been set before us. So that would be the opposite form of snobbery to mm-hmm. say that old things we should question essentially all old things and why they exist. There's no value in them in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So, did that person appropriately use the appeal to tradition? I mean, essentially, if the argument is we only do things because they've been done before. I think that's literally the definition of the fallacy. 
Yeah, I mean, if you don't understand why well, you do something. Yeah. Um, well, I'm kind of of two minds around that. Because part of me says, if you don't understand why you do something, you're not going to be able to know how to adapt it when it needs to be adapted for con- for when, when situations change. So, um, but then on the other hand, like, sometimes you got to just keep doing traditions even if, even if you don't understand them because they are formative. Yeah. Um, so. But formative in what? I, I, I think as a modern skeptical kind of fella. I think, Graham, you fall easier into traditions than I do. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to be one who questions them more. But I think I think in all those situations, before disregarding a tradition because you cannot make current sense of it, you should know where it came from. Mm-hmm. So I would be fine with, say, switching the side of the road that we drive on because I know where that came from and why Mm -hmm. and why it's outdated and doesn't make sense. The other one that I don't quite understand is like no elbows on the table. Why that tradition? And I don't know if it comes from like not wanting to set your elbow in the soup or if it comes from like an era when we had puffy sleeves. And before I disregard the tradition, I would like to know, okay, this was from puffy sleeve era. We don't have puffy sleeves anymore. And when I do, I'll be sure to keep my sleeves off the table. Right. But even if it's a totally arbitrary thing, people will still judge you as being as lacking manners if you put your elbows on the table. So even even if we go back to the origin and we say, yeah, it doesn't really matter anymore, it's still a, it's still a moray, it's still a norm. And so because it because it is a norm, and this is probably just me, but certain norms I will respect in in certain culture because because it could be a stumbling block for them. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is you know, if it's like a, a wedding or a, a family get together with someone that I care a lot about or like something like that. Like you swear less in the South. Yeah, like I swear less Great. in the South or I dress up more for church in the South because that's just something that the South the people do there. I But other than that, I have, I think that falls into fear of man and my own fear of being judged. Like I, I don't go out of my way to follow tradition or social mores that are nonsensical just because they are social mores. Yeah. That's that's probably just a me thing. It's a small rebellion. And that I guess that's a piece of the question. We'll dive in. I have three things to go through. So the question then is, is what do we do with things that are given to us by tradition? Is the right reaction to them that skepticism to say, we should ask of all traditional things, are they still valid today? Or I guess, should we start, come from the place of questioning them or from the place of accepting them as this is what comes before us, we should understand them before we just throw them all out? And you, I mean, when I phrase it like that, I'm sure you know what direction yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, I mean, I think understanding it, understand them is important. I mean, I, like, I think attitudes of this change as you grow older. So I remember a distinct, so when I was a kid, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the movie or uh, seen the play Filler on the Roof. Yes. Are you familiar with it? Tradition. Yeah, excellent. Tradition. So when I was a young, when I watched Tradition. it. So hold on. If I were a rich man. All day long I'd biddy biddy dum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. All right. Anyway. Um, wow. Why haven't we started a barbershop? We should have. Trio. Oh, because that's how that we sound. very reason. <laughs> <laughs> we just exhibit A. Listener, yeah. if you'd like to send a review, send it to <laughs> classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net and we will... Anyway, as you try not to read it because you shouldn't read yeah. reviews. That's a good point. Your work. Well, actually, when I was young, out. I remember. So uh, the story has it where Reptevia, the main character, he's got five daughters. Three of them get married in the in the course of the of the movie. 
or the play, the oldest one to the little tailor, the middle one to the Jewish revolutionary who's part of the who wants to be a communist, and then the last one marries a non-Jew Russian. Yes. And meanwhile, in the background, the communist revolution is happening, and they, as Jews, are getting kicked out of Russia. And at the end of the play, they move to Chicago. I think. Or they move to America. They they leave. They have to leave their little Jewish community in Russia and and disperse. Um, and the father acquiesces and allows. And isn't that, isn't the the last half of that where they move to Chicago? Isn't that West Side Story? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Isn't that and where then, that's and then he makes Puerto, someone? Yeah, and then she marries someone from Puerto Rico. America. Um, anyway, so the father acquiesces and allows his daughter to marry the tailor as opposed to the person he set her up for. Yeah. He acquiesces and lets the middle daughter marry the Jewish revolutionary, communist revolutionary, even though like. He's a political revolutionary, but he refuses to accept his last daughter's marriage to the Russian. And at this at, at this point, he says, like, the tradition, I, I am not going to go outside the bounds of the tradition with this. I'm not going to allow you to marry outside of the ethnic community. And as a young kid, I remember thinking that that was such a huge character flaw in Reptevia. I'm like, oh, my goodness, how can you be so cruel to your daughter? She's in love with this Russian. Um and then I remember watching it, um, one of our teachers was doing, well, uh, she was part of a, a theater group that did it at a local church, and my wife and I, we went and we watched it. And I remember sitting there through this, and by the end of the play, I was just thinking to myself, like, heck yeah, Reptevio, you made, like, I was on his side with this decision, because yes, his daughter was in love, but his way of life was being completely threatened by the fact that... Um, uh, uh, you know, their close-knit community was being destroyed because of um, these sort of outside pressures that didn't understand them, and they had to they had to flee. And and what what has kept the Jewish people going in living in hostile environments? So, like Judaism, after the diaspora in seventy A.D., have lived all over Europe and all over the world, but they have kept their identity for. 2,000 years because of traditions. Now, those traditions have adapted and changed, and they had the temple, now they don't have the temple, and they've had to adapt those traditions, but the, but they've, so they've had traditions that have had sway, but they've also had traditions where they say, you know, we do not go outside the bounds of this particular thing, and for this family, you it was like, marrying, you know, do not marry someone who is not Jewish, don't marry the Russian. Um, and I remember just listening, just, just watching that and feeling like, yes, that makes sense. Like, you need to have a line that you will not cross, even if your kid's not going to understand you. Ah, it's hard. It's a, it's a difficult one. But, I, but I, I, think, I think that is the right course of action if you want to keep an identity, is that you need to have lines that you don't cross did Reptevia fully understand why he was why he didn't have his daughter marry it? Did he could he give like this huge bird's eye view as to why you shouldn't cross that traditional line, or was it just so deeply ingrained in him that it was he couldn't have made any other decision, even if he couldn't fully articulate so why? I think there are two sides to that coin. First, there is an Ottaquashio thing to. Traditions. Thank you. Sorry. Yes. Right. Yeah. Adequacy to traditions. There's an adequateness. When I when I was 13, I didn't understand yes. all of the traditions that are there and why they're there. Why a ring is maybe important in marriage. Something, you know, what it symbolizes and sure. why it's there. Uh, I don't understand a lot of things. And and so part of coming up against traditions is perhaps I just I don't have the 
the years on me or I don't have the miles on me to understand where that's coming from. Sure. That said, just it seems to me that just maintaining an identity is not a good reason necessarily to uphold traditions. What if your identity is a terrible one, right? The ancient Spartans, they had some traditions that went by the wayside. And I think probably for good measure, I, I know mostly why many of them were there, but they were incredibly harsh to you their children. bludgeoning weak babies? Bludgeon, yeah. And, and being cruel to children and yeah. teaching them all to steal. And I understand why those are functional, but it made for a society that may have been cruel, very cruel. And I, I mean, we use the word Spartan as an adjective yeah. now for a reason. Yeah. Right. And so like we do this because it preserves our identity it does not seem to me to be a good argument for the, the Jewish community. Right. Part of the reason they, they maintain those is because those traditions were given by God. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that is a we do what he says. So there is an argument there for tradition outside. It is just a tradition. This is what we do. It is it is a tradition that was given by God. And this is the identity he has given our people. And we should keep that sacred. Right. And then this gets to the individualism you were talking about in the last episode, yeah. that if we then have the ability to, Graham, your phrase was bird's eye view. If I have the ability to look at kind of all options for how my life should be and then pick the one that best fits me, I create a, I create a polis of one. I create a society yes. of one, which uh, separates me from everyone else. I, I might be it able is to, never going to be satisfying. It will never be yeah. satisfying. I mean, literally, Lewis's definition of hell is, is essentially yes. that. You, you have this. You're left alone left alone and you are current, uh, always running away from other people. It's, it's loneliness forever. Yeah, God again. says, fine, your will be done and yeah. leaves you alone. And, gives it, and that's and what hell gives is. It to you. So I, I, I just want to say that there is a tension there of you don't always know the reason for a tradition that's passed on to you. And then also you don't always get to like pick what you think is the best one. Cause you mm-hmm. could be wrong in what you pick. Mm-hmm. That's the other, that's the other side of it. Let's, let's dive into these three points just to kind of, we'll go through well, them just, and you'll disagree. Before yeah, we sure. jump into it, I think we're also living in a time where we are completely bereft of traditions and people are very, very hungry for it. Yep. And, um, um, and are wanting, and are wanting those traditions and are sort of looking at their kind of modern lives and realizing that we don't really have traditions. We've got Thanksgiving and we've got Christmas and that's kind of what we have. Um, and, um, and I think that's why you see a lot of lionizing the past in terms of, shoot, even like putting Instagram filters on your pictures to make them look like old old Kodachrome uh-huh. from the seventies, right? Yeah. Because there's this, this there, there's this longing of nost- I think nostalgia and tradition. There's this longing for some sort of idealized past where um, where things made sense, and then nowadays they don't. Now I, I, I don't think things made any more sense in the seventies than they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's they certainly didn't make more sense in the middle ages. <laughs> oh, but let's follow this. So uh, when disagree you, when we read, but stick with it. So when we read the funeral oration on the last podcast, yeah. did everyone agree with that yes. speech that he gave? Yeah. But you think all 40,000, cause it was oh, primarily directed. Everybody directed, in Athens. Agree that's what I'm saying. Did everyone, did all 40,000 men I mean, in Athens agree to how? it? How can, no. and I don't know that I agreed with it. We have made sure. all places highways for our daring. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I really want to stomp my way up into Canada and make it my own daring highway. Well, like, yes, that's not my place. We should, but bring it on. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> you, you, the thing is, is you guys wouldn't do anything. You just be like, have <laughs> okay. fun in the snow boys. <laughs> and then you just go a little higher yeah. and then we would freeze our <laughs> way out of there. You yeah. forgot to leave without your hug. <laughs> Bye guys. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But, it's so cold up here. And I'm just, again next year. We'll try again. This is the same point. I think you all are making that we, it is easy to over 
simplify the cohesion of the past and say, well, everyone felt this way. Mm -hmm. Or like, this is the classical view on a thing when really we only have one extant work on it and we don't know about the people who disagreed with this person. Sure. And I don't Even know. in philosophy, yes. like sure. Plato Just, disagreed with a lot of people. A lot of people disagreed with Plato. Even one of his greatest pupils, yeah. Aristotle, disagreed with Plato. So yeah. in, in the same way that when we read a history textbook and it tells us like, this is what the 18th century was like. And there were millions of people that didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a complexity to, and that. there were probably full communities that lived and died and disappeared without any chronicle at all. Anyone knowing that's exactly right. All right. So let's take this. So the question I'm, I'm going to try to get at, and I think you're, you're on with this tension right now is should we be more chronologically egalitarian? Should we be less considerate of the age of a thing? So again, if we're going to say that in some way, appealing to either tradition or novelty can be a fallacy, or is a it is possible for appealing to tradition or to novelty is a is a fallacy. Then these are kind of three ideas I had, and you might push back on these. And in case I don't reference it at any point in this, uh, Josh Gibbs has a very helpful article: "Is Classical Education Just Organized Chronological Snobbery?" That if I'm not referencing by name, I'm referencing many of the ideas in it. So just so I say that. So a the first question on here we kind of got to this is: Does age give us any insight into the validity of a thing or an idea? Does age give us any insight into the validity of an idea or a work? Oh, does it? I, I kind of feel like there's a threshold for age. So, well, like... Things written in the last hundred years don't rise to that threshold. I, I kind of find myself ascribing to the, to the sort of statement that we really can't make sense of history until a couple of generations have passed. Hmm. So... Um, like it's 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 the hundred year anniversary of the end of World War One that happened this past November, and I feel like it's only really now that we can look back a hundred years ago and really make sense of how that catastrophe happened. Mm. You couldn't have done that in the forties, and you couldn't have done that in the seventies, and we really can only kind of get our hands around it now. Um, and it's, it's not going to be until we're old men that we can really look back and get our hands around what has happened. What, is ha what happened to America in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so I kind of ascribe to that idea just in terms of looking back in history. I know this is not really your question, but I feel like in terms of, of judgment and assessment of the, of the past uh, things, you do need to have enough time pass for you to be able to accurately assess whether it is useful moving forward. Sure. So there's some things that are just so. So then there is a piece of information that anything in the last pick your cutoff is too modern to judge the. You're talking about history specifically. Yeah. To judge this is the kind of like of. our conversation we had about satire, yeah. right? Satire was something that was really much really of the moment, and at some point it just becomes like a cultural artifact. Yeah. So like uh, Swift's uh, a modest proposal um, is now more of a cultural artifact about about how people felt about the how the British felt about the Irish in that time. Um, but it doesn't like, it doesn't really have much use nowadays in terms of other than it's not a classic. Like we, we don't read this because it, it gives us universal truth. It's now just <clears> sort of this <throat> artifact that tells us about attitudes, you know, during that years time ago. period. Yeah. Um, but you know, so like is, will the daily show be classical in a hundred years? 
or even be listened to or known or any of those things. Um, So I feel like you need to have a certain amount, a long enough period of time pass for something to have fallen out of favor uh, or fashion so that we can then actually assess it on its own merits. This is a great point. So will, will a modest proposal be talked about in a hundred years? Only as uh, giving a glimpse into the attitudes of that time period. I think. Or as an example of satire. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think it depends on what well, can you restate your question one more question time is does age give us any insight into the validity of an idea or a work so I think those two things are very different questions the validity of an idea, idea or, or work. a okay. work the validity of an idea can be evaluated based on basic logic right is an idea valid is a logic question it's a philosophy question um, and we can evaluate those now the validity of a work well a work can't necessarily be valid a work can be valuable right or impressive to instead of valid say uh, the value it does age give us any insight into the value of an idea or a work Ooh, that's a that's a different thing so the the value of a work uh, again the modest proposal was probably incredibly valuable for its time it is less valuable as a work now because Mm -hmm. it speaks to a specific problem that passed away rather than a central problem of man Um, when we talked about what makes a classical work it was that it has to address some of the big ideas and so 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 i would say that the further a work worms to the core of man the more staying power it will have and the more valuable it will be over time but that isn't to say there are some things that are incredibly valuable now Right. There, there are works that might be totally spot on sure. culturally no. valuable in the in the moment Great. and absolutely necessary, yep. but will not be valuable 100 years from now, where as certain works will be. This is great. So, but let's take it probabilistically. So if 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 the two works being put up against each other, the only thing you know about them is that one of them is a work from 1500 years ago that, you know, we still have access to versus a work that came out last week. So my question is has the work been popular for the last 150 years? We still have a copy of it is all you know. I would say that um, it depends on the content of the work. If the, if the content is scientific, I would say likely the newer work is of more valuable. Um, If the work is, and not even necessarily valuable, it depends on who it's valuable to. It's as a scientist, the newer work, obviously, but as a historian, the older work. Um, Uh, I'm wondering, so in, so over the, I forget if it was this last summer or the summer before one of the books I read was the structure of scientific revolutions, which is a, a great book. And in the book, he, he talked is this, um, Kuhn. Kuhn yeah. yeah. And so a part of what he's talking about is how science develops over time. And this is what you're getting at AJ. So a belief, I think it was held in the 17th century. I'm probably wrong on that is that there was a, a particle in matter that there was a thing and I forget the name of it, but there was like a thing that was in stuff that let it burn. So like it wasn't fire. Yeah, right. Exactly. But there was like an actual uh, molecule molecule in there that allowed it to burn. And it wasn't like the oxygen that's in it that's being let off to have that burn. But like there's a, a separate thing other than an element that was in wood or paper or whatever that allowed it to burn. So that was wrong. Like that thing doesn't exist that they thought was there, but it's still a part of the history of science. Is that should we, does that not matter? Do we not, do, do the mistakes of science not matter to us understanding science today? So again, I think the value depends on who's looking, right? If, mm-hmm. Is it historical? Is it for, if it's a scientist that is trying to learn about current states of matter, that work is almost utterly useless. This is interesting because there's no utilitarian. You can't get the answer you're looking for, right? Like, right. But for a historian, the answer yeah. he's looking for is what did they believe? And that is the only way he can get his answer is looking there. 
Yes. This is so interesting because you, this ties it then back to the individual of does the individual get a value from that work? I'm wondering if there's like a value inherent to the work itself. And maybe our answer can be, we can't answer that because it depends on the person. That would just surprise me that you would, I don't know. So, I I mean, it seems like we are getting too confused. The the question isn't about the individual and the question is, what do you mean by definition of value? Value to whom and value to what and value for what, right? If if you were talking about what is the value of an idea, if we are measuring value by its application to a number of individuals, right, it will affect the most individuals, then that is one evaluation of value. There there might be a cross section of 200,000 people that it doesn't make any difference to. But if the question is, can this inform someone who then informs someone else who then makes some big decision? Yeah. Right. That sure. Like, so it depends on what exactly you are asking. Yeah. So let me, let me take it another direction. So the question is, does age have anything to do with the work? So if we, could we just erase the published date on all works and then judge them on their own merits? Is that an okay way to approach literature? Maybe that's one way, or, or works, or ideas, or things. Ah, uh, but then you you run the risk of obliterating the context of things. If yes. I read, if I read something that claims there is an element, an extra element in matter that makes things burn, if it's written by a modern scientist, that man is a quack. If it's written by an ancient scientist who is trying to make sense of the world, he oh. may he may be the originator of, originator of many great ideas, and it will help to inform the process by which like, like help to inform how we understand things now yep. and maybe future discovery. I mean, right. The, the, the value of something also isn't just derived of one conclusion that you can get from it. So let's yeah. take the example of the guy who has the wrong conclusion about what makes matter burn. Yep. If he comes to that conclusion and the reason why he came to that, what we know is a wrong conclusion is because he just doesn't have the right kinds of modern instruments to right. detect things, but his methodology, like, he came to the conclusion, the conclusion, and it is a logical conclusion to reach based on this the methodology that he did, the tools of the time, the scientific method that he's applying. And we can look at that rigor and see his sort of sequence of thought. And then he gets to like a technological gap and then makes some sort of inference. Oh, then therefore there must be some kind of thing I can't see that's causing this to burn. Um, there's something really valuable in going and watching somebody really ascribe to a method and then make conclusions. And then us as people look back and say, okay, well, he was wrong because he was wrong for reasons why he doesn't even know why he was wrong at the time. And then we can say to ourselves like, oh, dang, what are we doing? And what conclusions are we, what sort of gaps in knowledge or technological abilities are we jumping and saying, therefore the universe is X. And then we don't even know what we don't even know, just like how he didn't even know what he didn't even know. And so in that sense, there's a value, but it's almost I've, like a, a, a secondary or a tertiary value apart from what he, apart. So the conclusion he gave, you're rejecting, but, but you're, you're getting this other value by reading it because of contextualizing it to his time and your time and then thinking about future time. I think that even more than that, his, the, the gap that he makes, the mistake that he makes in his conclusion if it has informed a series of conclusions from other scientists all the way down to a current belief, Mm. and we can say, wow, this current belief is working on an assumption that comes from a far previous assumption that we know now to be wrong, it can inform some new discovery in the way that if we look at a current philosophy, and if we have no idea where that came from, 
that's a problem. But if I can look back three philosoph- three worldviews back and say, okay, it's coming from this philosopher who was clearly wrongheaded about this one specific thing, and I can see that thread yeah. worm its way all the way down to a modern philosophy, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Just sure. as, say, relativism, right? Yeah. Everyone feels like relativism is this brand new, wonderful thing. It's, it's not. It, it was ever. proffered around, what, 400 by a guy, and then again around 1200 and then again around 1600 and every time it has been summarily dismissed by every other philosopher Mm -hmm. because it's self-defeating so if i know that then next time somebody says you know what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me i can say no it isn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah exactly we've done this yeah we've done like you're late to the party my bro right and that's just uh an ignorance of history to not to not know that to think that you're totally unique but to claim that the value in a work is just historical information again is one type of value whereas a work that speaks to the inner core of man is another type versus a work that is rare and should be read for its rareness yep is another type i mean we we have to define what sort of value we're looking for sure no that's fine i'm just saying that i guess that i mean value means it's it's worth the paper it's printed on let's at least take that so even if conclusions are wrong in the sphere of science is it still worth knowing that history and the way Graham is talking about it is the way I think about that also. That, and it's largely the point of Kuhn's book is that most of our breakthroughs in science come when we have new, uh, as we are able to test things more, as we have instruments that allow us to measure things better. That's when we have our next level of breakthrough. And so, AJ, to that, like, we don't know the ways that we're wrong right now, but we can look at the way people's wor- people were wrong in the past, and that might give us some insight into how we're wrong right now. We're not thinking through things right now. Or we can look back and say, holy crap, that guy was a lot closer than he realized, yep. and then his contemporaries, and then the next 50 years after him realized. Everyone thought he was a quack, but turns out Actually. he was really onto something. Yep. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, the, the, um, for sure, we, we see that in... in math you see that in uh i've just been re- i was reading um nassim taleb's uh, black swan mm-hmm. and that's a lot of the conclusions that he reaches about probability and about sort of our fundamental inability to predict things is there was a lot of people who were talking about this in like the 19th century that contemporaries thought were wacky because it was so in vogue in the 19th century to think about a scientifically deterministic world. And that was where all the research dollars went. And that's where a lot of people's careers were made, that we look at them as the as the bright lights of that time when now we can maybe recontextualize that and realize that the luminaries of that time were actually not so bright. Mm. And the people that were considered you know, um, these wackadoos with, with, you know, very lackluster careers and no, nowhere universities actually were onto something. So let me just two thoughts on then does the age of a thing give us some insight into, does the age of a thing tell us something about that work? Maybe that's, I I keep changing my question. I don't mean to be cagey with it and jumping around. You're young. Yes. Sorry. I'll get it right one of these days because I'm young. I'm better is what I'm, is what I meant to say. But when I am in the now, (laughs) which is good, we need this. So does the age of a work tell us anything about the work itself? It's old. Yes. It tells you that for sure. Does it tell you any more than that? It's old. So a piece of that would be to say that we don't have all works that have been created ever. Yes. There were certain works Mm -hmm. that were passed on from generation to generation to generation to which monks said, yeah, we should probably write this down. And those things have made it to us. Mm -hmm. So in that respect this aj you're getting at a really important tension of we shouldn't say all old things are good because they're not there i've are, read a lot of really bad old things i have yes. and sometimes the value in them is just to understand how things were at the time 
But a thing that has been in publication essentially forever, bears are looking at and understanding why it's been around for that long. And there's a certain type of value in that. If people have chosen to manually write that for hundreds of years and then make sure that the next generation would have it, there's something in that that we should at least look at and understand. So just as a first thought. Age can give us some indication to the value of a thing. Yeah. If it's, if it's, if this is Graham, your point, if it was like pre-printing press, then it's, there's probably some value, some thing that was worthy of being passed on to the next generation. Yeah, there was this bottleneck of history where, uh, uh, like you were talking about, the monks had to make these sort of qualitative decisions. Um, and that's what we have now, like Aristotle, as mm-hmm. opposed to some other unknown philosopher that we'll never read because... Even though there could have been... You know, Aristotle is my boy, but could there have been someone else who's actually like smarter than Aristotle and corrected all of his thoughts and was actually better than him? Maybe. But if he had written anything down, people would have been trying to preserve that for a long time also. I mean, even in scripture, we have Paul talking about how awesome Apollos is. And he's like, hot dang, Apollos' letters are fire. And how many of those? And we've got none of them. Right. Yeah. Now, there's pro- as Christians, we also believe that there is a uh, a divine hand in in the our canon, right. um, that it's not God spoke the words to one man and he wrote them down. We can't change any commas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christians, Trish, Christian scripture is very different than that kind of, that's sort of more of an associated with Islam. Um, but we also believe that like the canon that we have in the church is, is divinely guided. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only think only the wacky classicists would think that the Western canon is divinely guided. I don't think we have that. Nope. Um, so I think there's a few things to say. I think the the age of a work is not necessarily exactly what you were addressing, but the the intention of people to preserve that work and its popularity, which can tell me something about the work, right? If, if thousands of generations of men have preserved a work, that is different than saying it is simply old. If I find one copy of a thing that's been buried in some dude's basement in Afghanistan for 300 years, yep. that does not necessarily tell me that work is, work is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also point to several accidents of history where Gilgamesh was incredibly valuable for thousands of years and we found copies all the way out out in Egypt and it was spread everywhere and then people were destroyed the the library at Alexandria or Assurbanipal's library was lost and so was that work until we refound it Um, as with the iconoclasts right they came and tried to destroy a whole bunch of art and that would have meant that one generation of men can destroy something thousands of other generations not thousands but other generations have tried to preserve since the beginning so Sometimes the preservation of a work can be an accident or, or simply a function of the printing press rather than. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I, yes, I think it's called a confounding variable when you have multiple things happening at the same time. So I I do agree with you that it's that intention of keeping it, but depending on age, those two are tied together that both the intention and the age. are So, so sometimes the age of something can imply that men have been preserving it, which is, which is definitely a thing. But I think how well it is preserved can also tell us that thing. Like we have multiple, we have more copies of the Bible than anything. We have a few copies of, I think, Plato. We have only one copy of Beowulf, which means that it may not have been as preserved as the others. Um, The other thing I'll say, the other value of old works, this comes from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if we've ever read this on here before, but the other great value to old books is this. So I I looked it up. Sorry, guys, I'm going to heist here, hijack. Every age has its own outlook. And didn't I promise just last podcast I wasn't going to read the whole thing? Well, this isn't the whole thing. It's only a part. Every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. 
We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means old books. All contemporary writers share to some extent the contemporary outlook, even those, like myself, who seem most opposed to it. Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of ages past than the fact that both sides were usually assuming without question a good deal which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be. But in fact, they were all the time secretly united. United with each other and against earlier and later ages by a great mass of common assumptions. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century the blindness about which posterity will ask, but how could they have thought that, lies where we have never suspected it, and concerns something about which there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt, or between Mr. H.G. Wells and Karl Barth. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we half knew already." Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. I want to get to this last sentence here. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. And here's here's the kicker. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. So not to say old books are better, they are simply of a different age and give us a new perspective. So yes, I think there's value in preservation, and can tell us that it, it's spoken to several generations of men. But I think there's also value in reading things that are not from our own period. Mm-hmm. And if I could read the books of the future, awesome, but I can't. So I have to read old books. Yeah. I mean, we've talked, we've definitely talked about cultural yeah. blind spots on the podcast before For and sure. how those old books can give us fresh insights into the blind spots that we have in our own, in our own present culture. Um, yeah. So uh, a, a good argument for why you read, uh, why you do read and preserve these old things. Um, Are you telling me I'm dredging up the past? You are dredging up the past, <laughs> yes. In the good way, though. The tradition of the podcast. Can I offer another thought you on may. the value of a thing? So the, another, another way that age can give us some indication of the value, validity, whatever, of a work is a thing called the Lindy Effect. Mr. Donaldson, have you read about this in Nassim Taleb? Isn't that a dance, the Lindy? <laughs> the Lindy, it's, yeah. Isn't only it a type of swing hop. or something? Only if you hop. So the, only if there's hopping? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lindy hop. So, um, the Lindy effect, yeah, sounds so familiar. The Lindy effect is a is named after this like deli in New York where it's like they're like Broadway people or comedians or something went to go and talk. So it's like where the who's who of New York entertainment went. Anyway, Lindy effect is this idea that the longer a thing has been in existence, the longer a thing has been watched, read, viewed, whatever, the longer it is likely to be in the future. So things, it's, it's a, it's a form of a power law wherein things that are popular, things that are read will continue to be read. Yeah. And a, a way of understanding how long that's going to extend into the future is how long is it, it has extended from its origin to today. So a, a way of understanding what the, what age tells us is if the Odyssey has been read for However long it's been around. How long has the Odyssey been around? 
Uh, it was written down, years. I think, around years. the year yeah. 800, 800 BC. So, so almost 3,000 years. So if 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 it's been read for 3,000 years, there is a there is a likelihood of it being read for another 3,000 years. So the distance from the like the longer a thing exists, the longer it is likely to extend into the future. Mm-hmm. To which to which AJ, I hope you're thinking that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because a thing that existed yesterday will extend one day, and then every day it extends it is likely to extend further and further. No, I don't think that's at all. That makes sense. Uh, There are a lot of books I think we read simply because they are classics, not because they should be classics. Oh, interesting. But regardless of their quality, they'll still be read because we call them classics. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't you ever read a book that someone has called a classic and you read it and you're like, that's really not that good. Yeah, but part of me says, like, I'm not ready for it. Or I've Catcher talked, in the Rye. Flip and hate that book. My, my wife loves that book. I so Sorry, Sarah. In, in the same way that Great Expectations was a book I hated when I first read it. It was hugely influential to me when I read it two years ago because it just captured a thing I was going through. Holden so, Caulfield's such a little twit. It's that is an accurate description. I still think uh, personally, I think Jane Eyre isn't that all it's cracked oh up goodness. to be. Jane Eyre's great. You are what are you talking wrong, about? Yeah. Let me. Just, I could I could make my argument for why I I don't I'm not saying it's not a good book, uh-huh. but I don't think it deserves its status. Well, I guess we don't teach it here so maybe veritas agrees with you i don't know let me just i think i might have had something to do with that (laughs) (laughs) so listener just to say how this lindy effect thing works so when a human when a human when a person is born in the united states they have a life expectancy of 78.69 years that's me googling and it's the first result so about 79 years that's the life expectancy Mm -hmm. okay guys when a person reaches the age of 70 is their life expectancy a mere nine years more (laughs) um no because why? Yeah, because there's all sorts of effects, like how healthy they are, how sick they are. Yeah, the, the fact that they've survived to the age of 70 is an indication of the health of that person. Yes. So the when we say life expectancy at birth is 79 years, that's taking into account... The fact that all sorts of people die real early. Die, die, yeah, die yeah. younger than 79 years mm-hmm. old, and it works out to an average. So every subsequent generation of men that reads a book, it means that the book speaks to... What, that one more also. generation of men, which yep. means that it has something to say. So is it more likely that the seven-year-old is actually going to live past 79? Is yes. that, is that what yeah, the effect? Yeah, this is as of 20, mm-hmm. the, again, the first Google search. If you've lived to the age of 70, your expected life expectancy is 85.3. Yeah. But if you make it to 85.3, your life expectancy moves out and out and out every time, every year that you uh, grow older. Mm-hmm. It's There's information as to how old you will be based on how old you have made it to be. It's an indication of your health. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, that's what the Lindy effect is capturing. Oh, my goodness. What? You'll you'll never die. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what it is. Of course, we all live. Every year I live, I'll be like, that's 10 more years, everybody. Which is a wonderful way, wonderful, optimistic way to live. I understand math. Unfortunately, the Lindy effect is limited to non-perishable things. So Mm. ideas or... Uh, technology or things or like Twinkies. that. Yeah, yeah. But as a, as a metaphor, it's helpful to think of mm-hmm. uh, life as we live longer, that's some information about the health of the person. So not to say you will live until 85, mm-hmm. because the whole point is that people die before then if you're 70, but you're more likely to live longer the longer you live. So there is information uh. captured in the age of a work that if it's lasted for 3,000 years, it is likely to last many years into the future. If it's going, if your children, your grandchildren, whatever, are going to read this book, it's worthwhile for you to spend some time with that work mm-hmm. if it's going to be around for that long. Mm-hmm. Is that a helpful way of phrasing that? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, we are... Uh, there are two other points here that aren't as helpful, and you all would push back and disagree on them, with it, which is the point. The other two we're, that I had proposed and we're going to talk about is that old things and new things are equally worthy of attention and time. And again, I think this comes back to a probability of 
I'm not saying that all new things are bad. I'm saying that it's very hard in the moment to figure out which ones are the great ones. Yeah. We can figure oh, totally. out we can figure out the popular ones very easily and we can usually figure out the good ones, mm-hmm. but to figure out the ones that are going to last 100 years in the future is essentially a guessing game. Yeah, I mean, this is I think you see this the most in music, right? Yeah, like who knows what is going to be the popular like I remember on KUTX, which is a local radio station, um uh, the guy was reading uh, what were the number one hits in America in like the 60s and 70s. And there was a span of, throughout the months too, like it was a long list. And there were so many songs I'd never even heard of. And I'm a big fan of, you know, classic music. So classic rock. Um, so uh, yeah, you never can tell what is class, what is truly great in the moment, which kind of comes back to my point of, you kind of need that 100 year um, mark to be able to look back and say, oh, like, the poems of, of you know, this World War I veteran or the works of this person talking about the war are way better than, or you know, we actually do have this sort of staying power because you can never really know. Like, like is Childish Gambino the hotness? Is he going to last forever, Hannenberg? Who knows? We have no way of knowing. We have no way of knowing. Childish Gambino is perishable. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so he himself, the, the man sure is no not. Twinkie. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the, the final one that, for us to consider, but not is, is whether classical education slash classical studies is institutional snobbery. And we kind of answered this at the very beginning. The intention is not, Mm -hmm. of course, of course it is possible for people to be snobs who listen to, who follow the classics, read the classics in the same way that it's possible to be snobbish about new things. So there's a tension on both sides that it's all how you do it. Yes. So there's a value. What, what we are attempting to do in classical education is not to say that only the good, only the old things were ever good. But there's a value to them that's worth understanding. And 2018 Texas is not going to encourage you to read these things. Like being in an environment like Veritas will encourage you to read these great books, mm-hmm. which can be challenging for high schoolers and for adults. So cool. there's a value to them. It is not snobbery. It is, uh, we've used this phrase before. It is, it, I always get this wrong, Graham. It's the feast. We offer them a feast here at the school. The ideas that we offer are a feast, but there are other things that sure. are tasty. We don't good. Give- they got to bring the spork. Yeah, yeah, as we always say on classical stuff. That's not true either. The teachers should give them the skills to eat the food, digest the literature. Yeah. We don't educate the students. We offer them an education. Always good. All right. That's everything I got. So we are not. And then we offer them to the gods. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> or no, we wait, that's our graduation yeah. ceremony. Uh, human, uh, human sacrifice, oh, which is a great no, end note to the thing. podcast. <laughs> are we still recording? Oh, no. This is not a real thing. Um, but this has been classical stuff. Um, Thank you for listening. If you have things to tweet at us, tweet at us at classical stuff at the Twitter page. Um, you can email us at classical stuff at veritasacademy.net. Um, you can find us at classicalstuff.net to look at pictures of past episodes and the, our smiling faces and tiny little bios written in haste many moons ago. Um, we thank you for listening. And uh, this is AJ Thomas and Graham signing off and Merry Christmas Merry Christmas I live in the moment (laughs) bye